This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and it's my pleasure and honor to be able to interview Dr. Jaroslav Bublik today. It is silly to have a teleseminar devoted to dehydration, one person says. The answer is simple. I can hydrate my body by forcing myself to simply drink 8, 12, 14 glasses of water every day. So what's the big deal about dehydration? I think what I would have to say in response to that is that if it was as simple as, as, as simply drinking more water, a lot more people would be a lot more hydrated than they are. It's pretty clear to me looking around uh, at the people in the, in the world around me that um, it's not that simple. Simply forcing yourself to drink more water, you know, it, it may have a, a short-term transient impact on your state of hydration, but um, the analogy I, I guess I make is, and many people that, that work in, uh, in office spaces will be familiar with the, the sad and sorry potted plant in the, in the corner of the boardroom, um, which really gets neglected pretty badly. And uh, the fact is if you water that potted plant, chances are most of the water will simply flow through it and end up in a puddle on the floor. I think many of us are like that potted plant. We've been neglected for so long in terms of providing adequate amounts of, of uh, hydrating fluids into the system that when we do pour a large amount in, most of it simply flows through. Certainly it is many people's experience when they decide, um, you know, they have an, an epiphany and they decide that they're going to get really hydrated and start drinking their 8 or 10 or 12 glasses of water a day, that they find that all the, the only real impact on them is the fact that they spend a lot more time going to the bathroom. This suggests to me that, and has has long... Uh, and we've supported this with research. This has long been shown by us to be the fact that there are two pathways of hydration in the body. Um, there is short path and long path hydration. Short path is into the body, uh, into into the into the mouth and into the uh, digestive tract, into the circulation, straight into the kidneys, and then down to the bladder and out. With very little of that fluid ending up impacting the hydration of the actual individual cells. And then there's long path hydration where that, that circulating fluid does manage to get out of the, out of the circulation into um, extracellular fluid, then into the cells where it carries nutrients in and then back out of the cells as, where it carries toxins out, back into the circulation and then through the kidneys to the bladder. And that long path hydration is what we're looking for and that unfortunately does get switched off with neglect and simply pouring more water into the system doesn't switch it back on again. And you need to take some sort of proactive step. We believe that aquas are a, a good uh, example of that, but there are, there are probably other things that you can do to, to provoke that um, long path hydration. Why is it that as we age, our bodies become more and more dehydrated, or at least it seems that's the case? Well, that's a that's a an interesting question, and it may well be that we're looking at that question the long way around. Maybe it is that our bodies age because they become more and more dehydrated. I would put it to you that perhaps if we're able to maintain the levels of hydration in the cells, then many of the age-related process of degeneration would actually be slowed. So it's certainly true that dehydration, increasing dehydration, and aging go hand in hand but um, perhaps it is that we should be looking at that question from the point of view of making sure that we stay hydrated and and in doing so that process will actually be 
slowed. I'm not sure we can stop it completely because there are there are other factors at play here and I'm not saying that hydration is the only factor that's important in the ageing process but certainly it is, is it, it is a significant one and I think if we can manage it then we can gain some, some anti-ageing benefits. Why is it that a well hydrated body is so essential to being able to eliminate toxins in the body? The analogy that I like to make here is, um, is for, for you to think about uh, uh, the ebb, ebb and flow of the tide. The water that's available in the body is a major amount of moving matter that is able to move in and out of cells. Uh, and it is, in fact, the mechanism by which um, all nutrients are brought into cells and also all toxins are taken out of cells. If the, if the volume or, or the mass of water that's moving in and out of cells is low, then the ability for nutrients to be taken into the cells is reduced and the ability of toxins to be removed from the cells is reduced. So simply in, increasing the available mass of, uh, of fluid that can move in and out of cells will both improve the uptake of nutrients and also the clearance of toxins. So it's uh, very important for the body to be well hydrated to facilitate the clearance of toxins. There is a, a great deal of interest in understanding different ways a person can go about hydrating their body, and I've got a list of, actually, uh, most of them are foods or beverages, and I'd like to, to give these to you so that you can give us some perspective on how much they help or hurt the hydration process. The first on my list is... Salt, and so the idea here is, oh, well, if I just eat really salty foods, that'll make me thirsty and I'll drink more water. Good idea. A uh, little flawed because the issue there is that with the intake of the uh, salt and primarily the sodium in the salt, the body uh, seeks to maintain the uh, concentration of sodium in tissues across a very narrow range, and um, the way it does that um, certainly if you take too much salt into the body is to turn up the first reflex so that um, you consume a uh, proportion more fluid and therefore dilute out the uh, the sodium that's present in the system um, and, and ultimately flush it through to the kidneys where it can be released. Simply taking more salt, there may be a couple of instances um, exercising very hard in, in, in high temperatures where there's a lot of salt loss that can exacerbate the dehydration effect of, of that exercise. Maybe a situation where some additional salt intake might help hydration uh, homeostasis, but um, in most cases um, using additional salt to simply promote more drinking will not result overall in an increased hydration state. What about energy drinks? Well, with energy drinks, we have a couple of issues. Firstly, we have the, the fact that um, they do contain fluid, so that's a good thing. Secondly, we have the fact that they do contain electrolytes. With what we've just said about sodium, um, that can be appropriate where those electrolytes are necessary, but it can also be unhelpful where they're not. And thirdly, energy drinks contain calories, calories in the form of carbohydrate. And in order to metabolise that carbohydrate, we, to some degree, in the process of metabolizing that carbohydrate, generate some new water in the body. 
So carbohydrate is composed of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. We breathe in additional oxygen. We use that to burn the carbohydrate and we end up with carbon dioxide which we expire and some water fraction. So it's possible to carry some extra water um, into the body by the, the burning of that carbohydrate. The, the problem for most people is that they don't completely burn the carbohydrate. They have some residual carbohydrate um, and, and those extra calories you know, may not in fact be helpful for the individual. The source of fluid in, in energy drinks probably um, makes them quite useful, but for most people except those who really need that en extra energy and the electrolytes, something like water or, um, or dilute fruit juices uh, are, are probably a better way to hydrate. How about coffee and tea? The issue with coffee and tea, and we should probably include in, in, in this part of the, the story alcoholic beverages, is that caffeine and many of those xanthine-type compounds and uh, alcohol um, have a diuretic effect. So they will, in fact, turn up the, the gain on the filtering capacity of the kidneys. The consequence of that is that we end up losing fluid from the system through this diuretic effect. So very weak tea, green tea, um, dilute tea-based drinks are probably okay um, in moderation, but um, the stronger coffee and uh, certainly stronger alcoholic beverages probably result generally in a net water loss um, with the consequence of increased dehydration. Next on my list is soft drinks like colas. Well, again, they contain generally carbohydrate. For many people, um, that additional... Uh, those additional calories uh, are not something they necessarily need. They also, in the case of cola in particular, cola uh, does often contain amounts of caffeine. The cola drinks often contain amounts of caffeine, and in fact caffeine is hidden in many soft drinks these days. So that has a diuretic effect. And so look, I, you know, I don't certainly have any kind of prohibition on soft drinks, but um, I think there are better choices that you can make um, if you're looking to, to, to hydrate. Than, than soft drink. What really are the symptoms of dehydration? Many people tell me, well, I don't know whether I'm dehydrated or not. How would they be able to know? Well, I think the, the reason that dehydration is such a difficult um, issue to, to really manage is that the symptoms are, are not particularly obvious until the level of dehydration is quite extreme. If you, if you encounter someone who is significantly dehydrated in an acute way, that is they've been out you know, exercising hard at high temperatures um, or they've simply had no fluid intake for a lengthy period of time, then typically they'll be tired, <clears throat> they'll be um, lethargic in, in terms of being able to maintain any muscle tone. They will often be confused, but this is an extreme sort of end state level of dehydration. That's not where most people are most of the time. Most of us are at a point where we are only fractionally dehydrated. And the symptoms of that are much harder to pick. For some people, there are a whole series of little tests that people can, can use and, and certainly which physicians can use to identify um, the advancing stages of dehydration, in, including picking up a a small amount of skin on the back of the hand between the thumb and the forefinger and seeing how quickly it returns when you let it go. So you pick up a, a little roll of skin and, and let it go. 
it's not a particularly ac accurate um, way of, of measuring dehydration and certainly depends a lot on other factors like the age of the person and so on. But um, for, for individuals who might be listening in today, um, it's, it's a way that you can, uh, you can monitor, I guess, to some degree. But overall, those are, are about the limit in terms of being able to measure these things by symptomatology. We have scientific techniques for measuring the relative state of hydration, but obviously they're not available to most people. So the simplest way to address the issue is to make sure that you take steps to maintain an optimal level of hydration at all times and never allow these, these signs and symptoms to, to creep into your um, experience. Um, and I know that's kind of avoiding the question, but the reality is for most of us that's the best way to approach it. You have lived in many different places in the world, Australia now and San Diego. Are there really any differences in the water that you find in different locations in the world? Or is water, water, water? Is it all the same? Uh, look, I think there are um, significant differences as, as I travel around. I think the, the biggest differences I see is between uh, water in places where the uh, water supply, um, the water catchments are very close to the point of end use. So in a place like Melbourne where I come from, we have uh, mountain catchments not very far from the city and so the water quality is, is pretty good out of the tap. Having said that, for, for the last few years we've had a drought in uh, southeastern Australia and um, the amount of water that's flowing into the catchments has been reduced and so the water authorities have taken the uh, decision um, some time ago to, uh, to chlorinate the water um, in order to protect um, the water bacteriologically for the uh, for the end user, other places I've been to in the world um, where the amount of chlorine protection varies um, makes the water either usable or not. Here in Southern California, um, frankly, I have a pretty hard time drinking the tap water. We certainly use a water filter here or buy bottled water um, for consumption, um, but there are you know plenty of places in the world where the water is probably of, of ad adequate quality and really I guess that's something that each person needs to look at in their in their own uh, particular area. What I would say about these various water protection um, additives such as chlorine is that um, I always use the analogy of going to the supermarket to buy um, something perishable like some meat or some chicken or some fish and uh, typically in a modern supermarket that's presented to you on a little styrofoam tray with some, uh, some uh, plastic wrap around it. Nobody would consider going home and simply throwing the whole package in the pan or on the barbecue. You will always remove the, the packaging that has been put there to protect that perishable item from bacteriological exposure. And I think we should look at water the same way. Um, water is a, a sensitive um, uh, you know, product, a sensitive um, material that um, will readily pick up contamination from whatever environment it's in and so the water authorities I think quite wisely um, protect it. Um, in the case of water they do that by putting additives in and I think we should remove those additives in the same way that we remove the packaging on the meat before we use the water. If you're fortunate to live in an area where there's no packaging around your water, well, well and good, go ahead and use it but if you're in an area where there is these additive chemicals, then you should certainly look 
at removing them in some way. Um, and a, an appropriate water filter is a good way to do that. And failing that, I think prepackaged bottled water where um, the packaging is in fact the package and it's much easier to remove is, is a better way to approach the, uh, the issue of quality water. Some people approach the challenge of de dehydration using structured water products, which are uh, more and more found out in the marketplace. Can you say something about what these products really are and uh, how, how they help? Yeah, uh, water is a very interesting material. People talk about water as H2O, uh, two hydrogen atoms bound to an oxygen atom. But the reality is that liquid water, the, the type that we drink, is, has in fact a, a whole range of higher order structures. So typically in a, a nice pure form of liquid water, those H2O molecules are associated into rings and chains and clusters. Um, and it is this hydrogen bonding between individual water molecules that gives water some of its particular biophysical properties such as um, surface tension and its solvent capacity and these sorts of things. A number of people have attempted to, I guess, address the issue of higher order structure in water by producing what are purported to be structure modified waters. So the thinking here is that in a very pure water which has been recently condensed from the gas phase so that's uh, rainwater in a cloud or um, perhaps even the water that falls in a mountain stream the clusters are re reasonably small in size um, typically you know the, the smallest cluster we typically find would be six water molecules in a ring but um, often larger clusters than that are found in that kind of water but as water is run through pipes stored in dams or reticulation systems or in or in packaging for that matter it's understood that larger order structures do form one of the hypotheses is that these larger structures have a more difficult time penetrating into cell walls and and passing through cell membranes and therefore inferior in terms of conducting nutrients into into cells in response to that concept certain companies have developed methodologies for creating structured waters where the water clusters are said to be smaller even down to the point where there are some companies that um, claim to have water clusters of just five water molecules now I think this is a very interesting concept and there is a certain amount of science that supports the possibility of creating small water clusters but Thermodynamically, they're not particularly stable and water has a tendency to always accrete into larger order structures. So the ability of something that is a small cluster to stay as a small cluster in a package so that it can end up in that form in the hands of the end user, I think are still under something of a question. And so um, I don't particularly go looking for those sorts of structured waters. I think there are some um, some technologies now available for creating particular structured waters in situ um, so that uh, you would put conventional water in at one end of some sort of device and out of the other end of the device you would get um, some structure modified water. Um, that may, assuming that technology works, that may be a better way of going about it than buying pre-packaged structure modified waters. But I think the um, the jury is still very much out as to how well these 
these approaches um, optimise the hydrating capacity of the water. I, I remain a little sceptical about that whole area. I'd like to ask a, a series of questions about what good hydration can do for people by way of just motivating interest in this as a subject. I've got a series of questions about what good hydration in the body can do. Can good hydration address the symptoms of diseases? Look, I, I think hydration is such a fundamental issue in the human body that it is inevitable that at some level they are implicated in, in many disease states. Now, as to how direct and causal that relationship is, I think that probably um, varies uh, across a range of diseases. But, you know, I, I think most people would accept that in order to be truly well, we need to have adequate, adequate amounts of nutrition of all of the sort of major nutrient groups. So we need adequate amounts of vitamins and adequate amounts of minerals and appropriate amino acids and essential fatty acids and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's important that we think of water as a nutrient. I think it's a critically important nutrient, in fact, arguably the most critically important nutrient. And so making sure that we have adequate amounts of it available for all the processes that it's involved with, I think, is, is you know, uh, of um, undeniable importance in terms of creating wellness. Now, how much water is implicated in particular disease states? Well, at the very acute um, end of things, if you are acutely significantly dehydrated, it's life-threatening. Um, we can live without oxygen for but a few minutes. We can live without water for really only a, a matter of 20 to 40 hours. We can live without most food-borne nutrients for literally days. So water is clearly a critically important nutrient in that acute um, situation. How much water is Im implicated in, um, in other diseases? Well, there have been a number of commentators who have said that water or dehydration, lack of water, is implicated in virtually all disease states. I'm probably pretty comfortable with that as a, as a concept. Um, I think certainly you know, diseases of, of, the, uh, of the excretion uh, processes in the body, kidney disease and these sorts of things, water probably has a, a very important role to play. You know, when we come, and the topic partially of today is talking about Parkinson's, I think, you know, all we can say is that since we've had the tool in our hands of the aqua formulas, which has allowed us to intervene in a, um, or hypothetically intervene in the hydration process in the body, and we have seen some impact of that on the progression and development of Parkinson's symptoms in certain people, then I would certainly suggest that there's some linkage between the state of hydration and Parkinson's disease, but exactly whether that's a causal relationship remains, I think, to be borne out in, in much more sophisticated research than what we've done so far. Can good hydration improve mental clarity? Again, I think I'd probably answer this by citing the, the opposite um, situation. I know for myself, when I was training for the marathon, that when I became significantly dehydrated, as was the case before I had access to the formulas, I could experience a, a significant drop in mental clarity um, as I became more and more dehydrated to the point where I didn't even have the clarity of mind to consume more water. 
um, which is a pretty you know important thing to do when you're dehydrated. So I think mental clarity uh, is certainly something that disappears with um, with increasing dehydration. Now, on a day-to-day basis, at the the more modest alterations of hydration state that we would see in in day-to-day life, look, I actually I actually think it is pretty important as a neuroendocrinologist and a neuroscientist. You know, one thing that you can say about the central nervous system is that it's a pretty wet place. Most of the tissues in there are 99% plus water, and um, I think we would then assume that all we have to do is perturb that environment by a small fraction to see dramatic changes in um, in how well the environment operates. And so I, I think I'd, I'd be very comfortable to say that reduced hydration has an impact on mental clarity. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and it's my pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Jaroslav Bublik. Can good hydration improve digestion? I think that, again, here uh, I have a lot of anecdotal evidence for for this with the work that we have been doing with the aquas over the last 15 years. Uh, probably one of our most common testimonials that we receive from people is that it has that, that getting on the aqua formulas and improving hydration has had an effect on, on their digestive processes. Um, one place where hydration or the the presence or uh, or availability um, of water certainly has an impact is on the uh, on the activity in the colon. Uh, the the colon is the, the the most terminal part of the digestive system. is one of the, the few areas of the body where water can be resorbed um, from the external environment. And um, certainly, people who are dehydrated will will frequently experience changes in the in the frequency of of, um, of bowel movements. And if that is rectified by proper hydration, then that will often address that um, problem very very quickly. At that end of things, certainly. Now, if we go back up to the top of the digestive system, to the stomach, it would appear that maintaining an adequate level of hydration is critically important in the appropriate secretion of gastric acid. So when you first consume food, the first thing the body does is begin the digestive process with an outpouring of gastric acid. And in a dehydrated individual, that gastric acid is of reduced volume and and, um, lesser quality. And therefore, that digestive process does not get off to a good start. Now, as to what happens in between, not enough research, I think, has been done but given the uh, importance of the bacterial ecology of the, the rest of the digestive tract, I suspect that maintaining a proper level of hydration throughout the digestive tract is probably pretty important, um, if not critical, to, to digestive function. Can good hydration soften ten, uh, skin tissue and texture and make us look younger? I think Robert this is this is probably one of the hot button issues for uh, for so many people. You know, uh, when I I mean I'm here here in Southern California we have a um or in San Diego in particular we have a um a local newspaper called the Reader. When I lived here in in the mid 80s uh, most of the advertisements in the Reader were for places to go and drink and party on a Friday night and now virtually all of the advertisements in the Reader are for plastic and reconstructive surgery, which suggests to me there's been a wholesale change in the uh, attitude of people in 
Southern California. So I think this is a, a pretty important one. And I'm, I'm being a little facetious because I need to be careful. I don't want people to think that um, they can take the aquas and look 20 years younger. However, I think maintaining a proper level of hydration can absolutely have a, make a difference to the appearance of the skin. The skin is a hydrated tissue, just like all the tissues in our body. Um, as it becomes dehydrated, it um, exhibits some very obvious signs of dehydration and that little skin fold test that I talked about earlier is a classic example of exactly the sort of thing that, that the skin will manifest. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think uh, maintaining good levels of hydration um, can make a difference there. But whether or not this is the, um, the magic look 20 years younger pill, I don't know. They could be overstating it. Can good hydration control a person's body weight? This is a really interesting one, actually. Studies that have been done on the mechanisms that provoke the behavioural responses around consumption of food suggest that their hydration status has been ignored for a long period of time. There can be central nervous system confusion between a thirst response or a thirst cue and an eating cue. So to explain that a little more, we have a filtration, an, an information filtration system in our, in our brains called the reticular activating system. And it's this system that allows us to filter out um, extraneous information and allow, allow us to focus on particular issues. The, the best example of this is that if you're in a crowded room and you can often hear your name being spoken across the other side of the room, even though you weren't aware that those people were talking about you. What's going on here is that you're actually taking in all the information across the whole uh, room, but you're filtering most of it out. Most of it's not winding up in your consciousness. But when your name pops into the conversation, that comes straight through that filter. Now, think about that filter um, acting on the responses that uh, your body's tissues keep sending out for your, you to drink more water or eat more food. And again, if you ignore these things over a long period of time, which is typically what people who are dehydrated will do, then that filter actually gets very good at, at filtering out a thirst cue and calling it noise. And so there is a potential at least for confusion between you know, an I am thirsty message and an I am hungry message. And certainly what we've observed in practice in certain people who have started using the formulas and getting better hydrated is that they become much better at differentiating what is an I am thirsty message from an I am hungry message with the consequence that they drink more but eat less and this has an impact on their body composition. Now, it's certainly not the case with everybody. Um, but I think in certain individuals where that is the reason uh, for their um, for their body composition, then you know this can actually have quite a profound effect. Uh, always enjoy the opportunity to uh, to share that information with people. So thanks for the opportunity today to be on the tele seminar. Well, thanks for joining us, and that's what's happening at Parkinson's Recovery on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the men are handsome, all the women are smart and all the children are loved. Those of you who are listening know that you are on the road to recovery. <laughs>